This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like, what the f*** is going on? Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries. That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. Due to the nature of this cult's crimes, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of suicide that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. Terry Hoffman and a small group of her closest apprentices stood in a circle. They each held up an object, hand fans and antenna rods, as if brandishing weapons. The room buzzed with anticipation. Terry had long prepared them for the day they'd have to battle their invisible enemy, the Black Lords, and the day had finally come. Through the power of their collective meditation, the group prepared to leave the physical world and transcend into a spiritual realm. It'd be in this realm that the fight against the Black Lords would begin. So under Terry's guidance, they projected their makeshift weapons, each facing in different directions, north, south, east, west. After hours of this silent, still battle, Terry finally declared victory. However, before they could celebrate, she warned that they only staved off these dark forces temporarily. In their continued efforts to break out of the spiritual realm and into the physical one, the Black Lords would return. As a result, Terry counseled that the group's well-being depended on their unquestioned devotion to her. If they faltered, she warned, unimaginable harm would fall upon them and the rest of the world. Hi, I'm Greg Polson. And I'm Vanessa Richardson. And this is Cults, a podcast original. Every Tuesday, we look at a cult's practices, their leader, and their followers. You can find all episodes of Cults and all other podcast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you list the podcasts. Just stream Cults for free on Spotify. Just open the app and type Cults in the search bar. This week, we'll focus on Terry Hoffman's early interest in New Age teachings. We'll see how her charisma and intuitive nature turned her from a bored housewife to the founder of the popular metaphysics movement, Conscious Development of Body, Mind, and Soul. 
Next week, we'll cover Terry's rise to spiritual guru. Then we'll show how her influence over her followers was so extreme, it led her to being sued. The charge? Murder through mind control. Terry Hoffman was born in March 1938 to a poor family in Fort Stockton, Texas. Her father was an alcoholic who was rarely present in her life. His constant absence meant that while other children played, Terry worked with her mother in the fields picking cotton every summer to make ends meet. This was a source of embarrassment for young Terry. She was often the neighborhood kid's target of ridicule. They taunted her about her run-down house, torn clothes, and alcoholic father. However, Terry had a glimmer of hope when her mother announced that she was going to be a big sister. Terry was thrilled that she would finally have a companion. Terry's newfound happiness was short-lived. To her dismay, her baby sister was stillborn. Her mother despaired, but four-year-old Terry found the strength to get through the tragedy. She had a spiritual vision. In it, three men in luxurious robes appeared before her. They advised that whenever she felt hopeless, she should pray to God and he would listen. Then they left her with an even more inspiring message. They told Terry that she was special and was destined to do anything she wanted in life if she just tried hard enough. It's unclear whether this vision really occurred. The loss of a sibling might have had a deep effect on Terry's mind. Vanessa's going to take over on the psychology here and throughout the episode. Please note, Vanessa is not a licensed psychologist or psychiatrist, but she has done a lot of research for this show. Thanks, Greg. The apparition Terry claims to have seen as a child can also be described as a sensed presence. According to social psychologist Frank McAndrew, the sensed presence usually happens to individuals who have become isolated or are undergoing high levels of stress. These people report a perception or feeling that another person is there to help them cope. The men in Terry's vision did just that. They appeared after her sister's death and encouraged her thus helping her cope with her grief. And while the validity of the vision is in question, her faith in what she saw cemented Terry's path into spiritualism. Despite this reprieve, it wasn't long before tragedy struck again. Terry's mother, by now her only close family, became gravely ill with tuberculosis. <laughs> then, in 1947, she passed away leaving nine-year-old Terry orphaned. Terry's grief and loneliness triggered visions once again. After being transferred to an orphanage in Round Rock, Texas, young Terry had several mystic visits. The three-robed men returned and taught her how to pray. They also reiterated their message from years past, telling her that she should lean on God whenever she felt lost. The robed men weren't her only visions. Terry was also visited by an apparition of a German nun. This particular vision was educational in nature, as Terry alleged that it was the nun who first introduced her to metaphysics. The most important of these lessons was the one about the Akashic Records. The Akashic Records are a complete chronicle of the world's past, present, and future. They're believed to exist in a spiritual realm. After being tutored by the nun, Terry claimed that she could tap into this realm through meditation. As a result, she alleged that she had the ability to access all the information and history that had ever existed in the world. 
Eventually, the nun introduced the concept of reincarnation into their lessons, meditating on the belief that people's souls were reborn after death changed Terry's whole perspective on life. In reincarnation, Terry found solace. She told herself that her sister had died so that she could go on to live another life, better than the one their impoverished mother could have ever provided. Furthermore, Terry took comfort in knowing that her bullies would go on to live several more miserable lives as a cosmic punishment for their treatment of her. As a result of these visions, Terry became convinced that she was no regular child. The robed men had implied that she was special, and she finally realized why. While studying religious figures, Terry developed an interest in Saint Teresa of Avila, a 16th century nun and notorious mystic. It wasn't long before she started believing that she was the nun reincarnated. However, Terry kept this realization to herself. She wasn't ready to share her visions with those around her. The kids at the orphanage picked on her enough already. And despite Terry's desire to one day live up to Saint Teresa's fame, she also yearned for the normalcy of acceptance. For two years, Terry had watched other children get adopted over her. As she got older, she knew her chances of finding a new home grew slimmer every day. This reality baffled Terry. She knew she was a unique child. It confused her that nobody else seemed to be able to see that. In 1949, her luck finally changed. 11-year-old Terry was adopted. As she settled in with her new family, she likely told herself that the delay and her life thus far were all part of a larger cosmic plan. If she hadn't lived through a tough childhood, she wouldn't have had her visions. In this same way, her stay at the orphanage allowed for her to break through into the spiritual realm. And now, destiny had finally given her caring parents. The fact that her adoptive parents had lost a daughter to tuberculosis, the same disease that had taken her mother, cemented Terry's belief that otherworldly forces were driving her life. And although she knew she was destined for something great, ensconced with her new family, Terry cherished having a normal childhood at last. But then, Terry's contentment took a turn. At first, Terry's life with her new parents in Dallas, Texas, was everything she'd wanted as a young child. She had a nice middle-class home and a doting mother and father. Further, the Bensons showered Terry with all the attention they would have given their late daughter. However, as Terry grew into adolescence, her relationship with her parents soured. She felt smothered by their ever-hovering presence. To make matters worse, the Bensons disapproved of her relationship with John Wilder, an 18-year-old truck driver and high school dropout. Mrs. Benson didn't think Wilder was good enough for their 14-year-old daughter, so she forbade Terry from seeing him. This just made Terry want to leave home more. The handsome trucker felt like the perfect way out. So when John proposed marriage, Terry accepted. Despite her eager acquiescence, she kept her engagement under wraps. At 14, Terry knew that she wasn't legally allowed to marry without her parents' consent. Still, she was only a month away from her 15th birthday, so they took off to the nearest city where a 15-year-old could marry, Durant, Oklahoma. On May 2, 1953, the two were wed. Soon after, the couple returned to Dallas and began their married life on a farm on the outskirts of town. 
There, the pair lived a quiet life for the first couple of years. Terry never went back to finish school and became pregnant with her first child. In October 1954, 16-year-old Terry gave birth to her daughter, Kathy. The same year she became a mother, her childhood fascination with metaphysics returned. Terry's renewed interest seemed to stem from the humdrum routine she led as a housewife. The excitement of running away and getting married behind her parents' backs had long faded. In its absence, she realized that this wasn't the life she thought she would be living. After all, she was the reincarnation of a famous mystic. How was she supposed to fulfill her esteemed destiny if she was stuck changing diapers and planting vegetables? Driven by ennui, the young mother sought out a group of people who shared her spiritual interests. She enjoyed her new community so much that they began to meet on a regular basis. They meditated and discussed metaphysical issues like the origin of the universe and the meaning of human existence. In these intellectually stimulating sessions, Terry also found an audience for her unique visions. For the first time, she had people she could confide in about the supernatural encounters she had as a child. As Terry's interest in these matters grew, her husband John paid his wife's activities no mind. He thought of her metaphysics group as an innocent hobby. Furthermore, John considered the popularity of mysticism and its hodgepodge of Eastern religions as a fad. He indulged his wife's interest and bought her a book about a topic she had shown curiosity towards, hypnotism. John later recalled this purchase with regret. Enabling Terry's interests was a mistake that marked the beginning of the end for their marriage. It soon became obvious to John that his wife's priorities were shifting away from their family. And although Terry gave birth to their second child, Kenneth, in 1958, by that time, the 20-year-old mother was fully engrossed in the supernatural. To combat her growing fixation, John tried to bring some normalcy back into his marriage. He purchased a bigger home in Farmer's Branch, a quiet Dallas suburb. He hoped a new environment would bring Terry different kinds of friends. But John's efforts were in vain. Those early years of domestic bliss on the farm would never come back. Instead, Terry grew more distant from her family as her supposed hobby morphed into an obsession. To pursue her interest in metaphysics, Terry joined the organization Silva Mind Control. The Silva Method dubbed itself as a self-help program that helped devotees develop clairvoyance and harness the untapped powers of the mind. After a handful of years studying the Silva Method and the writings of psychic Edgar Cayce, Terry branched out on her own. In the early 1960s, she began to lead discussions of mysticism with the city's wealthy women at the local country club. However, Terry's audience wasn't limited to rich housewives. Her youth and magnetic personality also made her a favorite among the women's children. As teenage counterculture gained steam, many adolescents were growing disillusioned with traditional religion. As a result, Terry's brand of Eastern-infused mysticism seemed to offer an exciting alternative. Terry saw her growing popularity as the nebulous beginning of the life she'd always wanted. As far as Terry was concerned, like St. Teresa, she too was well on her way to becoming the next great spiritual leader. Coming up, Terry's young following becomes convinced she's gifted with divine powers until she's revered as a god.
This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. eBay Motors is here for the ride. With over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only, exclusions apply. Now, back to the story. After a troubled childhood and a lackluster marriage, Terry Hoffman rekindled her passion for all things mystic. Although she gave birth to her third child in 1963, the 25-year-old refused to be a typical housewife. Instead, she dedicated all her time to expanding her understanding of New Age spiritualism. Terry started sharing her knowledge with a growing group of followers. News about her teachings began to travel. Then, in the late 60s, a young man sought Terry out. He had heard about her and believed she could help him get rid of his addiction. On communicating this to Terry, she promised she could help him. After several sessions of prayer and meditation, the teen claimed to be healed. Word quickly spread about Terry among the young man's circle of friends. More teens clamored for her guidance. In response, Terry began hosting weekly meditation sessions in her home to an audience of about 20 high schoolers. She provided her services free of charge. Terry genuinely wanted to help them. And her work made her feel as though she was finally living up to the kind of life her childhood visions had foretold. Like St. Teresa, Terry was doing God's work. But she didn't stop at healing her followers. Terry was also a teacher. She took it upon herself to share what she'd learned over the past decade. She taught her students that archangels were their guides, so they should seek them out as she did in her childhood. The teens appreciated Terry's approach. Unlike other authority figures in their lives, she didn't speak down to them. What really got their attention, however, was a new and exotic term, the law of karma. Terry informed her students that if they lived good lives, they would be able to choose the person and environment they were reborn into. In this same manner, if they had unhappy lives or died horrible deaths, it was because they were paying a karmic debt for a transgression they'd committed in a past life. Despite the victim-blaming implications of her words, Terry's lessons were a hit. And by 1970, the 32-year-old's weekly sessions were prized by Dallas teens. In spite of her success, Terry worried that her lessons wouldn't keep her young followers' attention for long. In a bid to spice them up, she began offering meditation sessions. One of her students described how Terry would lead them into such deep meditation that it bordered on a hypnotic trance. In their meditative states, students believed that they traveled into an astral realm. There, they visited the temples of ancient spiritual figures like Buddha and Lao Tzu. 
Terry would take them on a tour of these buildings and encourage the excited teens to describe what they saw. No matter how outlandish their descriptions were, Terry would agree that she saw it in the same way too. At the end of their meetings, Terry blessed each of her followers as if she were a priest, and she might as well have been. She was so admired that some of the teens asked her for signed photographs, and Terry was happy to oblige. Her need to feel special fed on their adoration. In turn, their devotion primed them to accept even more outlandish claims. For instance, they didn't bat an eye when Terry shared her experience about being able to access the past and the future through the Akashic Records. But that wasn't Terry's only touted gift. She also told her students that she could see into their love lives and tell whether they had met their soulmate yet. At first, the teens were excited. Many of them were in relationships and anticipated being told that they had already met their soulmate in their current partner. However, Terry had no qualms with telling her students that they weren't each other's soulmates, thus breaking them up at a whim. John, Terry's husband, was disturbed as he witnessed several of these breakup scenes. The power his wife had over her young followers unsettled him. Terry's grip over her students only tightened. They believed her when she revealed a newfound ability. She told them that she had metaphysical healing powers. According to Terry, she discovered these powers when her son, Kenneth, dislocated his thumb while at a picnic. Instead of taking him to the doctor, Terry claimed that she healed him through meditation. She also began claiming precognition. As evidence of this, Terry once called in a student for an emergency meeting. Once the student sat down, Terry allegedly told him that his friend would die in a car accident that night, unless they meditated. After a short session, she declared the friend out of harm's way. And since this person did end up arriving home safe and sound, Terry's student had no problem believing that she had saved their friend's life. However, this wasn't the feat that cemented Terry's godlike stature in the eyes of her young followers. That miracle occurred when their musical idol, Jimi Hendrix, suddenly died. On hearing about the musician's death on September 18, 1970, the group was inconsolable. From Terry's lessons, they knew Hendrix's heavy drug use would certainly earn him bad karma. However, in the midst of their grief, Terry suddenly provided relief. She told them that she had the power to save Hendrix's soul. According to her, Hendrix made beautiful music, meaning that he could be forgiven. To that end, she gathered the group in meditation and summoned the famous musician's presence. At that, many of the teens were overcome with emotion, believing that they could hear Hendrix's music as they meditated to help him out of his supposed karmic debt. The teen's experience of hearing the dead musician's music is rooted in the power of suggestion. A study published in the journal Current Directions in Psychological Science explains that a deliberate suggestion can work like a placebo effect. As writer Polly Campbell explains it, once you expect something to happen, your behaviors, thoughts, and reactions will actually contribute to making that expectation occur. In this vein, Terry's students expected to hear Hendrix's music, and their expectations gave birth to the sound. In the aftermath, Terry told them that they had successfully cleared Hendrix's karmic debt. They had saved his soul. This apparent show of strength proved to the group that Terry could manipulate the cosmic order of things. 
In their eyes, Terry had demonstrated that she was more than a teacher. As for Terry, she was satisfied by her students' conclusions. All she ever wanted was for everyone to see how special she truly was. By 1971, 33-year-old Terry had secured a small but loyal following. To prove their adoration, the teens showered her with small gifts. Terry grew increasingly fond of these material displays of gratitude. As a result, it wasn't long before she began imagining an older, more affluent following. She was certain that they would provide her with better gifts. In search of such a following, Terry started conducting classes on spiritual development for adults. It was during this time that she finally settled on a name for her group, calling it the Conscious Development of Body, Mind, and Soul. This act was Terry's first step in building credibility. Afterwards, she began requesting love offerings for her lessons, basically a suggested donation. As for the price she put on love, it would cost participants $100, around $600 today, for one class. The hefty price tag didn't stop local university students from flocking to her courses. Her prosperous career seemed to be the last straw for her strained marriage. Terry's husband, John, disliked one of her students, 20-year-old Glenn Cooley. Glenn had taken an obsessive interest in Terry, one she indulged. Meanwhile, rich followers like socialite Sandy Cleaver showered her with pricey gifts. This upset John, whose modest wage paled in comparison to what Sandy could offer. By early 1971, Terry announced to her group that John's jealousy was stifling her spiritual growth. Then she filed for divorce. In the ensuing fight for custody of their three children, the court arranged for a psychological evaluation of Terry. Given her eccentric claims, they doubted her ability to care for her children. Despite the court order for her evaluation, Terry refused. Eventually, authorities had to forcibly take her away to Parkland Hospital. However, her stay was brief. According to Terry, the doctors had found nothing wrong with her. Despite her claims, when the divorce was finalized in March 1971, Terry was only granted custody of her oldest daughter. Her two youngest children and the family home went to John. Terry didn't mourn the loss of her youngest children or the end of her marriage for long. In fact, before the year was out, she married Glenn Cooley, the young man John had been suspicious of. Glenn was 13 years her junior. In Glenn, Terry found everything that her previous husband wasn't. He was completely devoted to her and the organization. As for Glenn, his love for Terry was entirely based on his belief that she had helped him quit drugs. In other words, it was a case of a fan marrying his idol, as opposed to a relationship between equals. Terry exploited this imbalance of power in the early days of their relationship. She love-bombed Glenn overwhelming him with affection. Psychiatrist Dale Archer notes that love bombers are experts at detecting low self-esteem and exploiting it. Their targets become especially susceptible during times of emotional stress. As an addict in search of help, Glenn was at his most vulnerable. A few encouraging words from a powerful person such as Terry, and he was smitten. It's for this reason that Glenn's mother disapproved of Terry. She felt Terry had taken advantage of her son's vulnerability. She even accused her of isolating Glenn from anyone outside the conscious development crowd. 
However, within the group, the two were perceived as the perfect couple. Together, they expanded Terry's reach and drafted the first official literature of the organization. In this, it was evident that Terry chose someone who loved her as much as she loved herself. Terry didn't just inspire this kind of worship from her new husband. The wealthy Sandy Cleaver was her most fervent supporter. She had complete faith in her new friend's healing powers and didn't hesitate to single-handedly bankroll the entire conscious development organization. As Sandy became more absorbed into Terry's orbit, her family life imploded. Chuck Cleaver considered Terry a scammer who was draining his wife's trust fund. Terry retaliated, suggesting that Chuck's negative energy caused the sickliness of the Cleaver's daughter, Devereaux. After hearing Terry's insinuations, Sandy filed for divorce from Chuck. During the Cleaver's ensuing divorce proceedings, Chuck expressed his concerns about Terry's influence over Sandy. He also claimed that Devereaux's illness was due to Terry's negative input, as opposed to his own. As proof of this, he pointed to the fact that Sandy had refused to take a feverish Devereaux to the doctor purely based on Terry's advice. Fearing for his daughter's safety, Chuck requested sole custody of Devereaux. Despite the evidence Chuck presented, the Dallas County judge ruled in Sandy's favor. Chuck was only granted visitation rights, although the courts did accept one of his demands. They agreed that his daughter could only be treated by licensed medical professionals. More specifically, they ruled that Sandy was forbidden to consult Terry about Devereaux's health. But even a court order wasn't enough to keep Terry's influence at bay. And soon, the charismatic leader's grip over Sandy would yield tragic results. Up next, Terry announces an impending war. Now back to the story. Terry Hoffman started her journey as a budding spiritual teacher in the early 1960s. Despite her increasingly far-fetched claims, she managed to attract several devotees to her new group, the conscious development of body, mind, and soul. By 1974, 36-year-old Terry Hoffman had built a loyal following on her reputation alone. With her devoted new husband, Glenn Cooley, and her right-hand woman, Sandy Cleaver, by her side, the organization flourished. The group boasted 110 local members and hundreds more paying for distance correspondence courses. Later on, Terry took conscious development to the next level. She incorporated the organization, making it an official business. Although her courses brought in a decent income, it wasn't enough for Terry. So she and her closest followers began making jewelry. Terry claimed that the jewels had special healing properties. This allowed her to sell them for an exorbitant amount. Ever eager to help, Sandy volunteered her home as the manufacturing base for the company. She even installed a printing press in her house to facilitate the spread of conscious development throughout the Southwest. And it worked. Within a year, Terry was a leading figure in Dallas's metaphysical community. People flocked to her in droves from as far away as Chicago. All her new followers believed they lacked something healing, learning, and or a sense of belonging. They hoped that they could find these things in Terry's group. Their desires made them extra susceptible to her charms. 
One of these new recruits was Janine Schneider. Like other Terry enthusiasts, Janine was drawn in by her spiritual guru's reputation. After joining in 1974, she quickly rose through the ranks of the organization to executive director. However, as Janine gained more access to Terry's inner circle, she made some unsettling discoveries. First, on multiple occasions, Janine caught Terry giving followers the same elaborate story of who they were in a past life. More concerning, as a New Age reader, Janine began to recognize lines from other people's work in Terry's supposedly original lectures. But what perhaps unnerved Janine the most was the lack of separation between Terry's personal funds and those of the organization. It concerned her that all the money was being intermingled and poured into one bank account. To Janine, it soon became clear that Terry dipped into the company's money. Furthermore, Terry made no effort in concealing her newfound wealth. She boasted about her new boat and draped herself in thousands of dollars worth of jewelry, allegedly as spiritual protection. Terry's love for the spotlight worked to further alienate Janine. On one occasion, Janine listened as Terry boasted that she was the Buddha of her generation. These antics completely dismantled Janine's regard for Terry, and it wasn't the only relationship to suffer from Terry's self-centeredness. In late 1976, Terry felt Glenn's devotion to her wane. So in November of that same year, the 38-year-old filed for what she described as an amicable divorce. Her heartbroken husband begged to differ. He likely still loved Terry, but he went along with her wishes to separate anyway, feeling powerless to stop it. Terry's separation didn't preoccupy her for long. In early 1977, she formed an inner circle of 40 of her closest followers. She called them teachers or spiritual masters and told them that they were handpicked to protect mankind. She also led them to believe that they needn't fear death. According to Terry, to die in the physical world would allow them to transcend into a higher plane of existence. The creation of this elite inner circle and its supposed mission worked to inflate her students' sense of duty towards her. In an effort to further deepen the emotional investment of her students, Terry claimed to have received a message from her cosmic guides. They told her that a war between the good and evil forces of the world was afoot. Terry informed her students that it was their job to join the fight and save humanity. Terry gave the supposed evil on the other side of the battle a name. She called them the Black Lords. According to Terry, the Black Lords traveled in the spiritual realm. For that reason, in order to fight them, her students would have to tap into this otherworldly realm through hours of meditation. As bizarre as her request sounded, her followers swallowed every word. So, armed with metal rods doubling as swords, her chosen students performed protection rituals under Terry's guidance. These so-called fights against evil would go late into the night until Terry confirmed they had won. Only then were her followers granted permission to come out of their deep meditative state. One reason for her followers' unquestioning acceptance of Terry's claims may have been rooted in some of the adverse effects of meditation. Psychologist Michael Persinger conducted a meditation study of over 1,000 students. 
he found that a significant number of them reported epilepsy-like brain seizures and a higher rate of hallucinating floating spots of light, hearing voices, and even feeling the floor shake. What Dr. Persinger explained as the brain's negative reaction to intense meditation, cult leaders like Terry touted it as proof of seeing into another dimension. She used this proof to justify arranging even more spiritual battles. At first, Terry would schedule these fights well in advance, as if they were sporting events. Before each battle, she would inform them of the number of black lords they were about to face. Then, at war's end, Terry or another group leader would confirm the alleged body count. But the demands of the war escalated. Terry called on her followers at all hours of the night, claiming that the good side was losing, so an emergency fight was needed. She emphasized how much danger they were putting themselves in, but noted that their deaths would be honorable and rewarded in the next life. Surprisingly, her followers weren't fazed by Terry's erratic demands, and even the few that quit the group were quickly replaced by other conscious development members who were eager to join Terry's inner circle. In fact, she used the battles to make examples of those that defected. Terry would blame former members for the Black Lord's presence. Those that defected from the group were considered vessels for Black Lord's evil. Thus, Terry warned that if her followers questioned her or deviated from her instructions, they would also be lost to dark forces and doomed to suffer in future lives. To assert her authority and test her inner circle's loyalty, Terry announced that Sandy's teenage daughter, Devereaux, was yet another vessel for the Black Lords. Terry did this because she wanted to drive a wedge between her right-hand woman and the only other person Sandy seemed to care more about than Terry. Since Devereaux had long made it clear that she disliked her mother's weird group of friends, Terry considered the teenage girl an enemy. Despite the unfounded nature of Terry's claims, Sandy's belief in her was absolute. Thus, after Terry revealed that evil lived within her daughter, Sandy became a distant mother. While on retreats with conscious development, Sandy would leave Devereaux with her maid for stretches at a time. While the war against the Black Lords raged on and Sandy's wariness of her daughter grew, Terry's divorce was finalized. Glenn filed a waiver to expedite the proceedings and even handed over ownership of his house to her. Then, on January 27, 1977, he and 38-year-old Terry were officially divorced. The organization was impressed. It was the smoothest separation any of them had seen. As a result, everyone was sure that Glenn would remain an active member of Conscious Development. They believed that despite their divorce, Glenn still remained loyal to Terry and the group. On February 2, 1977, that belief was shattered when Don and Alice Hoffman, close friends of Terry and Glenn, received a call. A frantic Terry was on the other end of the line. She told them that she feared Glenn had done something stupid. She said she had found a note from him in which he left her all of his money and possessions. The letter read like a last will and testament. After taking in the implications of Terry's words, both she and the Hoffmans raced to Glenn's cabin, all of them fearing the worst. When they arrived, they found Glenn in bed, fully clothed, with foam trickling from the edges of his mouth. 
Then they spotted a half-finished beer can and loose pills next to him. Glenn had committed suicide. Days later at Glenn's funeral, Terry exploited his death. She suggested that her ex-husband's demise was the work of the Black Lords. She warned her followers that they had to commit to her and her organization, now more than ever. Terry's actions only cemented Glenn's mother's dislike towards her. Mrs. Cooley described her former daughter-in-law's behavior as performative. Unbeknownst to Mrs. Cooley, Terry would soon kick her act into high gear. After Glenn's funeral, Terry didn't fall into a depressive state. On the contrary, his death only intensified her antics. At seemingly every opportunity, she hammered on about the Black Lords and their growing strength. Then in yet another escalation, Terry revealed that the Black Lords had poisoned her followers' blood. Shortly after this bizarre announcement, the members of the Conscious Development Group walked into a jarring scene. One morning, they came to class to find Terry's right-hand woman, Sandy, sterilizing needles. At the sight of their confused faces, Terry announced that the group was going to start performing new rituals, bloodlettings. Thanks again for tuning into Cults. We'll be back next Tuesday with part two of Terry Hoffman's story. We'll see her rise to all-powerful guru and the mind control accusations that threatened to topple her empire. You can find all episodes of Cults and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite ParCast originals, like Cults, for free, from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Cults on Spotify, just open the app and type Cults in the search bar. We'll see you next time. Cults was created by Max Cutler and is a ParCast Studios original. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler, sound design by Juan Borda, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Joshua Kern. This episode of Cults was written by Edlin Ortiz, with writing assistance by Abigail Cannon, and stars Greg Polson and Vanessa Richardson. 